welcome to Is There Hope for Truth? And uh, before the morning is over, uh, we will explain a little more what that phrase means and how we came to use that. So it's good to have you here. Um, uh, we, we will be, uh, the church is videoing these and make them available in some format for those who have interest and aren't able to be here or miss a session. So my name is Dave Reimer and I am one of the team that will be teaching these sessions and so uh, before the morning is over you will meet all of us and hear a little bit from us. This is intended to be an introductory morning. We won't get into a lot of nitty gritty today but that time will come. All right, let's, let's uh, have a moment of prayer. Father, we sense the weight of, of the, um, the need to know what we believe, who we believe, what the big story is of life and eternity. We confess to having incomplete uh, knowledge and experience in sharing that with uh, the people around us. We commit this session today to you as we get started. We commit the rest of the classes throughout the quarter. We pray for each of us who will be teaching for those of us sitting in the seats here that our hearts will be open and that this will be a significant part of our spiritual pilgrimage as we take steps towards uh, knowing you better, knowing your truth better, growing in our ability to communicate. So we commit this time to you and to the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word and uh, through us all as we gather together in Jesus' name. Amen. So the goal today uh, is to basically introduce our subject. Um, and, and as I said, tell you what the uh, title means, why we uh, chose this, Is There Hope for Truth? I do have that right, right? That's how we did structure it. Somebody asked me the other day, when is that uh, uh, class, Is There Truth for Hope, going to happen? And I, you know what, that title works too in a different way. So you'll learn about that. You'll meet uh, the teaching team. Uh, the three of us who are teaching are very different. And I think that is not a, a limitation. That's a part of what will enrich this class. You don't want to listen to a quarter of just me or any of the others, for that matter, although they're, they're really good. And uh, but I, I think hopefully there will be a synergy uh, that will make this a really meaningful experience for you. And so I'm going to kick it off, take the first third of the class or so. And uh, the other morning, Marilyn and I were... reading our devotional, and we, we, I, we came across, or one of the verses was uh, caught my eye. I wanted to begin this morning with a couple of verses from Psalm 10, uh, especially verse 4, but in, in the context, verses 2 through 4, the psalmist says, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. 
He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. And here's the phrase that captured me. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Those three verses, 2, 3, and 4, really are a very contemporary description of our culture. And uh, increasingly so. And so if we are going to help people make room in their thoughts for God, there are two things that are necessary, it seems to me. Number one, we must have well-formed, accurate thoughts about God. And secondly, if we are going to help people make room in their thoughts for God, uh, we have to accept the responsibility of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which reads, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So we have to think accurately about God, and we have to accept the responsibility of these. There are basically three exhortations in the First Peter passage. Number one, don't be afraid. That's verse 14. Uh, but revere the Lord. In other words, don't fear people. Fear the Lord. Secondly, be prepared. And thirdly, be gentle and respectful. If we're going to help people, know, come to know God. This is not an intellectual exercise, these classes. It's more than that. Then these are, these are the things we have to do. We have to not fear people, but fear the Lord. Be prepared, be gentle, and respectful. And this class is designed to help you in all three of those areas. We want to help you get to the point where you can share without fear with people around you, to prepare you uh, to share that, and then you can learn how to be bold but act and speak in a gentle and respectful way. So that's, uh, that's kind of the direction we're going. Um, yeah, and it, it, as if more people are coming in, we may have to squeeze into the middle a little. I know those, those outside seats are so precious. We'll <laughs> charge you a little more for those. Maybe most everybody is in Maryland. Maybe we should. We would love to have a record of, of your attendance and who is uh, here today. And if you want to be part of an email list that we may or may not use widely, I, I'm not sure, put your email address down. But put your name and email address if you want to be included on the list. And uh, make sure that gets to, keeps moving, gets to the back. My conviction personally is that most Christians have a lot of work to do in sorting out their own worldview and uh, their understanding of the faith before they can share confidently. One of the reasons we don't share confidently is because we just don't relish getting into situations where we don't know how to answer and we feel really embarrassed. And, and uh, here comes Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Getting more chairs. And so I want to uh, explain uh, uh, briefly what that, what that means. And I, I, I've taken as my responsibility in this segment of the class to 
kind of take a, I want to give you kind of a 30,000 foot aerial view of, of where we are and of the whole landscape of this, uh, this whole area of thought before we dive into the nitty gritty of apologetics, uh, which is simply a word that means to make a defense of the faith. And so I am going to take the liberty of reading a couple of sections from one of my favorite uh, apologetics writers, a guy named Gregory Kokel, K-O-U-K-L. And uh, a lady named Nancy Piercy wrote the foreword to this book, The Story of Reality. And she, she says this, one of Francis Schaeffer's most memorable, memorable sayings was that Christianity does not start with Jesus saves you from your sins. It starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Schaeffer's point was that Christianity cannot be re reduced to a tract or a technique for getting saved. It is a comprehensive account of the structure of reality a rational and real-world account of the history of the universe, a verifiable storyline of the unfolding of the cosmos. Now, it's totally true that Jesus came to save us from our sins. But starting with that theme is like going into a movie uh, theater halfway through the film. You, uh, you don't know who the characters are, you can't figure out the plot, you're constantly guessing at the events leading up to that point. Most important, you cannot appreciate the depth and complexity of the problem that needs to be solved. That illustrates a major, I hope you're following me, you're going to have to listen to this class, you're going to have to listen carefully. This illustrates a major reason the message of Christianity no longer makes sense to people today. They are no longer familiar with the first part of the drama. As a result, not surprisingly, they cannot make sense of key concepts such as sin and salvation. So everybody has a worldview. Every one of you has some kind of a worldview. It's simply how you see things. And when you say something like, well, it seems to me that this is what should happen, or I don't like the way the government is doing this, you're reflecting some sense of how the world should work, right? Now, not all of us have all the pieces put together. Um, we don't have all the details, but we have a sense of how the world should work. That's your worldview. Everybody has one. Um, if I were to ask you a question, I wish we had time to work through this a little. You know, what is Christianity? We get a variety of answers. Some of you would say something is a personal relationship with God through Jesus, or it's a religious system, or it's an ethical system. You'd, you'd get all kinds of answers. But the, the basic answer, I think, is this, and this is sort of the premise, at least from my segment of these teaching sessions, Christianity is a picture of reality. It explains the world. And it explains everything in the world as we see it. One more quote. Here's what I'm getting at, Coco ask that question. The correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. It is an account or a description or a depiction of the way things actually are. It is not just a view from the inside, a Christian's personal feelings or religious beliefs or spiritual affections or ethical views or relationship with God. It is also a view of the outside. 
It is a view of the world out there, of how the world really is in itself. Worldviews are like puzzles. Uh, we we and, and some of our grandchildren just recently completed a puzzle on our uh, kitchen table. And, and a worldview is like a puzzle in that they're made, it's made of many individual pieces like a puzzle. And for the picture to come out right, you've got to put the right pieces in the right places in the puzzle. And if you're, if you're missing pieces, parts of the puzzle, parts of the picture that maybe you didn't know, or uh, you get pieces from other puzzles mixed in by accident, you don't have a coherent picture. I promised you only one more, but I, I lied. There's one final passage I want to read. Here's the bigger difficulty. Dump a puzzle box at your feet and you'll see what the Christian, Christian puzzle looks like for most believers. It's a pile of pieces. They've never put the pieces of their puzzle together in an orderly way, allowing them to see the big picture. As a result, they do not know if they are missing important pieces. They also do not know if there are pieces of other puzzles, bits of other worldviews mixed in by accident that don't fit into their picture. Or they might get confused when other worldviews take some of the Christian pieces and try to fit them into their own worldview pictures. This, I see, one of our goals in this class is to help you identify important pieces of the puzzle of your own worldview and help you come out with what we trust will be a solid, healthy, fairly complete biblical worldview or understanding of the big story and help you put all those pieces together or many of those pieces if this is a first step in your journey of getting there into something that makes a bigger sense and that will help you communicate that to other people okay I've got about four minutes left uh, if you have some quick questions then uh, we'll take those and then move on to the next guy who is the author of that book Gregory Kokel, K-O-U-K-L. Uh, he has another one called Tactics and several others. I, I just like the way he writes. He, he, he and I, I, I understand him. Some of the stuff I read I don't quite understand because my limits are here, his intellectual limits. K-O-U-K-L. Part of what will happen in this class is that we'll, we'll get you acquainted with, with some really good resources. There are thousands, I would say, of, of books in an apologetic sense out there that, that are helpful in, uh, in different parts of it. Other questions? What's the exact title? The Story of Reality. The Story of Reality. What was the first scripture reference that you had? The very first one? Uh, Psalm 10, <clears throat> 2 through 4. Okay. There's no room in their thoughts for God. And the other one was 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, I use 14 and 15 because I think they go together. In fact, several others really ought to be all be read and it's a, it's a contest. Okay, Jeff? All right, um, I, I am uh, teacher number two. I'm related to that guy. He's my son. Uh, what's your name? 
My name is Jeff Reimer. He's my, he's my actual father. Alright, we claim it. Alright, um, kind of our, our task uh, when we were thinking about this first day was sort of to answer the question, why are you a Christian? Um, especially with an eye toward apologetics. And uh, uh, how much time do I have? Um, so that, in my case, that's the, the, that question is more like, why are you still a Christian? I, I don't really remember ever not being one. So why do you persist in belief? Um, so, so that's what I'm going to try to answer for you this morning. I'm going to talk in the middle about apologetics, but I'm going to sandwich it with kind of my story, or pieces of story. Um, so you'll get kind of my personal view of um, this class and how I'm approaching it. So about seven or eight years ago, I, I, I actually got really fascinated with this question, especially with my friends, especially friends I haven't seen in a while. Uh, so I, I sort of started pestering them with, with the question, why, why are you still a Christian? Why do, you, why do you still believe the things that we say we believe? Why do, you, why do you still get in a car on Sunday morning and drive to church? Because, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's easier not to be a Christian. Um, it, just getting to church every Sunday morning is a real pain, you know, especially if you have kids. Getting there on time, that's, that's a Herculean effort. Um, wouldn't it just be easier to stay home? Why, why are we still doing this? Why are we here? I, and I... I asked it because it's, it's an interesting question, but I thought I kind of knew the answer for myself, uh, but I think maybe I was asking for myself, but in a, in a safer way, you know, like it's easier to ask other people that question to get yourself to think about it. I think I was kind of doing that unconsciously. But I mean, for one, it's inconvenient to believe. Uh, number two, we live in an age in which unbelief seems implausible. It seems weird to believe, I think. Uh, in one sense, this has always been true. The incarnation, God becoming human, has always been uh, a scandal to rational minds. The cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the resurrection from literally day one has been subject to theories about what actually happened. Certainly, a corpse didn't revive, right? Certainly, the disciples stole the body in the night, as Matthew says. The, 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 the Jewish leaders tell, tell them, say, say that this happened, say that the Jewish, say that the disciples took the body. So these kinds of theories about the resurrection have been happening since day one. So the sort of scandal of Christian belief is not new. It's, it's difficult. Um, it's always been this way. But it's also true in a special sense for our culture. Um, for the first time in history, I think, we live in a culture where default, the default option is unbelief. You actually have to work your way into belief in God and the transcendent, and whether, whether you're, uh, at, at least in the West, at least in the modern West, North America, Western Europe, um, 
unbelief is more and more kind of the norm. This is especially true in elite urban centers on the coasts, but I would say that even here in you know, the God-fearing heartland, we, we still, we, we actually function this way in a lot of ways without realizing it. Um, I mean, how many sermons have you heard about make, make Jesus your Lord on Monday as well as Sunday, right? It's, we struggle to act like God exists all the time. Five, six, seven hundred years ago, people didn't struggle to act like God existed. They tried to, like, stay away from evil spirits, right? They, they, they all thought God and angels and demons were all around, and it wasn't hard to believe. It is for us, though. Um, so, so I think that's, that's also why uh, it's easier not to be a Christian. We've also, and this is related, um, We've also privatized our faith. We think it has to do with family. We think it has to do with our interior life, our private life. It doesn't have to do with politics or education or, um, or work. You know, it's, it's, it's this interior private thing in the public realm. Of, well, leave, leave that at home, right? Um, and again, we don't actually say we believe this, but I think deep down on one level we do. Um, I mean, just listen to a, a hit radio station all day. How many times do they mention God not as an expletive, right? It, it doesn't come up, and this is kind of normal to us, right? It, it seems, we, we don't really balk at it. Maybe we think we should, but, but we don't. I mean, how many, how many sacrifices to the gods did our president offer last year? That's new in history, actually, that our, our political leaders are not overtly religious. <clears throat> so... To sum up, Christian belief in our world is difficult. Uh, and I wanted to know what, what in this world, why, why are we still here? You know, aren't there football games to watch on Sunday morning? You know, it seems like it could be more relaxing. It could make our lives easier without believing. So, but okay, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but it just. It's, it's kind of a weird existential space to get your head into, and um, so I pestered a lot of my friends with it. I got some interesting answers, um, but because it's no, it's no longer, I think, whether now you know now this seven or eight years ago, I was kind of feeling like maybe I was finally an adult, and uh, it's no longer my environment or momentum or social pressure that's making me a Christian. It's actual choices. I have to, I have to really own this. And I've been kind of trying to do that all my life. But, I've got to own it now. Um, and it's a good question to ask yourself. You, know? uh, you, you want to revisit the fundamental questions on a regular basis. Um, because if, it, if it's not true, if Christianity is not true, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. Uh, and, but, but I think we don't, I don't, we don't like to because they're dangerous questions to ask. We, we get, we're getting into territory that we're, we're uncomfortable. We may find answers we don't like. Um, so this is where I think apologetics comes in. I'll, I'll tell you kind of what I think about apologetics now. Because, to be honest, I, I've never been much uh, of a First Peter 3.15 type of apologist. Um, my, and this, this, I'm bringing my own uh, sort of neurosis to this, but uh, just bear with me for a little bit. 
Because um, I always felt like um, First Peter 3.15 apologists were really eager uh, about the being prepared to make a defense part of that verse that my dad read. Um, but they tended to miss the to anyone who asks part. Uh, they're just looking for a fight maybe or an argument to win. Uh, and they positively ignored yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I was kind of turned off by just apologetics in general. Uh, I've always been kind of a, more of a Mark 9.24 apologist, which I'll read for you. I'll read nine, part of 9.23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child, who is sick, uh, cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. That, that was kind of more my approach to the faith. Uh, I wanted to witness to, you know, the complexity and the ambiguity and the difficulty of Christian, of Christian faith. And uh, I felt like a lot of apologetics tended to gloss over the difficulty of it. Um, so, you, you know, partly I like that because I'm a weirdo. I like difficult things intellectually. They, that's more exciting to me. Um, but uh, it, it, it also seemed more appealing. Like, it, 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 it was more true to life. It was more true to human experience. This uh, sort of paradox of, I believe, but help my unbelief. These, these are sort of coexisting at the same time inside of me. Um, and I still, I mean, doubt has always been a real thing for me. The, 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 the struggle to believe is, is real in my own faith to this day. Um, but my job, uh, my day job actually saved me from a lot of these pretensions uh, about uh, apologetics because I, I read for a living. Uh, I edit academic theology books and I've read many and long apologetics books. Uh, and and they're books by kind of rank and file, First Peter 3.15 apologists, the people I loved to hate. Um, <laughs> some of the worst offenders in my mind. Uh, and you know, I read these books and my suspicions were confirmed. You know, I, I got all that. Uh, but I also, again, to my surprise, found you know, my heart strangely warmed and my beliefs were actually strengthened. I read uh, early on in my editing, I had to read a giant 750-page book on the resurrection. Did it actually happen? I had to read it twice. Um, and I found, like, at the end, I, I believe in the resurrection better than I did before. This is, this is pretty great. Um, so I, I found that apologetics, you know, the defense of the faith, had I had been a beneficiary of it as a Christian. Um, and I think that's one of the main tasks of apologetics is to strengthen belief uh, among Christians so that they are more prepared. Uh, it's not just for having an answer to, to bludgeon your opponent over the head with, right? It's about becoming the kind of person for whom this belief is central and interior and that finds its way out regardless. Uh, it's a core belief. Uh, so, that's what I, I think, and I think that the difference is we, that we get 
confused about what the actual object of apologetics is, what the purpose of it is, what the end of it is. So I would submit that the primary object of apologetics is true knowledge of the triune God. That's what we want. It is, yes, to win other people to the faith, but I would say that's even before the primary end. The true end is for people to have true knowledge of the triune God. <clears throat> because true knowledge of the triune God is saving knowledge, for one. And two, there's a church father named St. Augustine, who I very much admire and respect. He says, you cannot love that which you do not know. You cannot love that which you do not know. If you do not know who God is, you don't have true knowledge of the triune creator. Your love of him is hampered. Your love of Christ is hampered. So, I would say that if you're doing apologetics for any other reason than gaining true knowledge of the triune God, you're liable to fall into one of three traps. The first one is triumphalism. Christianity is superior and therefore easy. And then you're in danger of misrepresenting what I think is actually the difficulty of belief. You can't hide that. You can't bait and switch <laughs> in your apologetics. In this case, you probably made the object some kind of dominance or power over another person. And you probably missed the with gentleness and respect part of, of the verse, of 1 Peter 3.15. The second uh, trap, I think, is rationalism. That Christianity rests on reason rather than faith. Um, in, in this case, you've probably made human reason, which has fallen, it's part of, it's part of our sinful nature. Uh, you've probably made reason the object of your apologetics. And in that case, you've missed the reason for the hope that is within you in 1 Peter 3.15. If you have that hope, you need to have reasons for it. But your reasons are not what give you the hope, right? That's belief. That's trust. The third, uh, the third trap is relativism. Uh, and I think this is the threat of my nine, Mark 9.24 apologetics. Uh, that Christianity is absurd or inherently paradoxical, and that's what you have to accept if you're going to become a Christian. Um, and if you, if in this case, you've probably, probably made human experience the object. You want to be so true to human experience, you forget what you're actually aiming at, true knowledge of the triune God. In this case, you've missed the reason for the hope that is within you. There's reason to it. So I think the true apologetics uh, sees Mark 9.24 and 1 Peter 3.15 not as antagonistic, but as complementary. Um, a true apologetics has to account for the complexity uh, and ambiguity of human experience. Uh, the I believe help my unbelief part. And it can't simply gloss over the difficulties of, of, you know, the problem of evil, why did the innocent suffer, or is it actually likely that somebody's going to rise from the dead? Well, no, but at once. That's the 
it's still <laughs> unlikely to happen. So you got to, yeah. I didn't hear your first one. Uh, you have relationalism and relativism. What was the first one? Triumphalism is the first one. Triumphalism. I forgot the Rationalism. Rationalism and relativism. The three. Three. Yeah. Um, so you've got a human experience on the one hand. You have Christ's prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So these two have to meet. And I think they're held together by ensuring that apologetics comes from a sort of formation of your soul where you, 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 uh, you've encountered truth in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, deep in your soul. And your apologetics witness to that. I think that will keep, keep it true. Um, so I like to like give fancy sources for my, my inspirational quotes, like Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard. But once I read on Facebook uh, <laughs> that you can't, you can't take anyone spiritually to a place you haven't been. Uh, you know, you, you, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're making this journey at the same time, you're sort of the blind leading the blind. Um, and I, I think the apologetics has to spring from that place, from this deep encounter with, true, with, with the triune God. Um, that's, that's, I think, why it was difficult for me to do apologetics in a kind of a 1 Peter 3.15 style, because I hadn't, I hadn't been purified by kind of the fire of true apologetics. Um, but once I had been, it kind of came easier to me. Um, So the, the, I'll wrap up here uh, with kind of one more part of my story. Um, a, a lot of this has been worn out for me in the last three years. Uh, back in 2016, uh, we found out that my wife had brain cancer. Uh, and that was the hardest news I'd ever gotten. But I felt like to a degree I, I, had, I had done some preparatory work, you know. I had worked through these problems. Um, I had worked through them beforehand a little bit, sort of in the abstract, it's safer that way, when you're not dealing with your own problems. Um, I, I, you know, I had kind of wrestled through the hard questions and kind of tried to think about other people's suffering uh, in terms of my own experience. You know, up, up to that point, I had, you know, I would see somebody, you know, they get tragic news and then they start questioning God, questioning God's existence. And I was, on one hand, you know, you want to be compassionate. On the other hand, I was like, have you not thought about this before? You know, a lot of people suffer all the time. And it seemed, always seemed kind of self-centered to me. I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of a jerk, but uh, I'm working on it. Um, and I'm better, I'm a lot better now, because I've had to, I've had to wrestle through those questions from the inside, you know, um, from the inside of suffering. But, um, I, 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 but I felt like I had something to fall back on. I had, I had done some of that apologetics work. I had, I had learned kind of my theology. I had some of that framework there, and it helps. It wasn't everything, you know. It doesn't take away those questions. It doesn't take away the difficulty. But uh, it can help. So uh, I want to end with kind of this. Look, 
life is going to throw really, really difficult questions at you. I, I would guess for most of us in here, it already has. Um, through the fire of experience, of the direct experience of suffering, it will happen. Um, and when it does, are you going to be the kind of person who has internalized at least some of the, the difficulty of these questions as well as the difficulty of the answers? Um, because when you get to those situations, pat answers, easy, flimsy, kind of, I just believe, you know, they don't, they don't hold up very well. You know, there's, there's something to be said for a simple trust. But when, you're, when those questions hit you, they will hit you hard and they will hit you deep. And you need to have some kind of machinery to put into motion to start answering them. Because it won't work as well if you're trying to build that machinery and use it at the same time. So it's worth it. It's worth it to wrestle through some of the difficulties of this. Um, or will you be able to say, when those questions hit, no, I've, I've thought through this before. I've weighed the evidence. You know, I've, I've considered the alternatives. And uh, I don't, I don't need, even need to walk down the path of doubt. Sometimes I find that like, I've been thrown like, down the path of doubt a good ways. You know, how did I get here? I'm kind of brushing myself off. But I think it's the measure of your, of your faith in Jesus Christ, how, how easily it is to kind of crawl back out of that kind of mire. Uh, and it happens. It happens over and over again. But um, sometimes when, when I find myself in that experience, like I'm praying, God, are you really there? And it seem like it. But then I have this sort of space in my head where I can say, no, I've, I've thought this through before. And I don't actually need to think it through again because I know where that kind of path leads. And that's, you know, atheism. And I don't think that's right. I think that's this path leads. You know, you can, you can kind of do that quick little triage and you're back on your way. Um, so, all that to say, uh, true apologetics, I think, is about spiritual formation as much as about intellectual theories and abstractions, and we'll get plenty of that, I'm sure. Um, it can prepare you for those moments and form you into the kind of person who is able to get a reasonable response and defense of the hope that is within you. It can even help keep that hope aflame, and it can help you do it with gentleness and respect, too. Thank you. All right. Um, I think I'm going to start first with the HOPE acronym. I'm going to write that up there on the board, and then I'll come back and kind of explain it, uh, what that is all going to be. And then I'll get to the next part. This is hope, and we pulled this out of that 1 Peter 3.15 verse, and the first part that we'll go through for the first three weeks or so will be history. That'll be the history of the Bible, the history of Christianity, um, and that aspect of our faith. The next one will be origins. 
this will be the origins of Christianity, religion, and us uh, as people. Um, the next one will be the one everybody will want to be here for. It's pain. Why is there pain? Uh, uh, I mean, that's pretty much going to be that in a nutshell. Why is there pain? What uh, violence, pain, anguish, sorrow, uh, pain. Pain. Oh, sorry. The last one is eternity. And that's pretty self-explanatory, unless, of course, you're new to faith. Uh, eternity is what happens after you die. Where do we go? What does that mean? What does eternity involve? Um, and how do you get there? So that is that piece of paper we gave you. That is what that is going to be. Um, those are essentially each three weeks. I think we added a week into one because there's a little extra information for that one. I don't know which one it is and I'm not going to say. Um, so that's it. And I have any questions about that at the moment? Okay. Alright. Part of as we discuss this class is we want to make sure that you guys feel free to ask questions. We're going to try to make space in our teaching so that there will be time to ask questions. We're also going to, uh, to some degree, allow questions to be asked as we're teaching. So if, if we are unclear or you just can't get your brain around the concept, Gently, quietly, raise your hand, and we will um, answer your questions because that is really the crux of this class is to give you the information to answer those questions. So if you leave with questions, we're kind of not doing our job. Um, so I guess I should start with uh, introductions. Um, I'm Ricky Greer. I'm teacher number three. Uh, and I have a question for you all. Alright, so how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Eight. Eight? Is that is that the general consensus? Eight? One tickle? No. It takes ten. Ten tickles. story and 
I will do my very best not to be hyper-emotional. I'll try to keep that suppressed like all good men should be. Um, and I have just enough time if I don't pause. So uh, we'll start at the beginning. And if I'm talking too fast, my lovely wife back there will tell me to slow down. Um, I was born to young parents. They were 18, 19. Uh, in 1968, I was born. I had a hard birth. Um, not sure. They just told me it was not easy. And when I was born, my dad was serving in Vietnam. So he wasn't there for my birth. Uh, he came home when I was about nine months old, after he had spent some time in Hawaii recovering from some combat injuries. And when he came home, he was not the same person. Um, him and my mom uh, had my sister and uh, when I was about four. And they continued to try to stay married, but they divorced when I was five. So my dad left. Um, my mom raised me and my sister to the best of her ability. Uh, she worked a lot. And since she worked a lot, we had to have somewhere to stay. And that was at her cousin's daycare. Um, I stayed at that daycare for all of my formative years, from when I was little, little, until I entered high school. Uh, I encountered some not so good things at that daycare. Um, nothing necessarily horribly physical or sexual, so that didn't happen. But it was a very negative atmosphere, and, and I was neglected, and um, if those things happen in today's society, it would then people be in jail. It was neglectful, and negative personal comments cutting me down, and, and stuff like that quite a bit. So I stayed there until I entered high school, at which point they decided that I was too much of a handful and that I was a bad influence on their kids. And so I essentially started living on my own because my mom was still working. Um, she worked 12 on, 12 off as a nurse uh, in a hospital. And she worked from 3 p.m. till 3 a.m. So she was essentially never home. And if she was, she was sleeping. Um, so, and, and then ever since I uh, started school, I was a small child. Um, I was very shy and very quiet. And this caused no small amount of uh, ridicule and bullying. Um, once I got to uh, middle school, I uh, learned how to fight. And I had a quick mouth, and so I fought a lot, and uh, it, that is what I did to defend myself. Um, and once I got into, and during middle school, I also started going to church with my uh, grandmother. I went to a large church here in Newton. Uh, I was born and raised here in Newton. Um, went to all my school here in Newton. And, and I went to church here in Newton. And the church youth group that I was in was a social club that I did not fit into. 
uh, I don't remember hearing anything about Jesus. At least I don't remember it. I don't remember uh, being explained anything about our faith. I do remember games of truth and dare. And I do remember um, kids getting busted for sneaking out to go to the bars on a ski trip. Uh, I, but while I was in that church, I did go through the confirmation process, which is a week-long study or two weeks long. I don't remember. I was 14. Um, where you learn about the church and the founding fathers and their creeds and codes and, and you learn that and then you have to repeat that stuff and once you repeat that stuff you get graduated and then you get baptized and then you become an official voting member of that church um, I have accomplished that and I was on the rolls of that church until I was 35 I never went to that church again after my freshman year in high school so uh, that is essentially my backstory as a child. Um, and, and as apologetics go, if being a child, if somebody maybe would have had an ability to explain things a little better or would have taken the time, uh, maybe I wouldn't have been so angry. I don't know. Who knows? Um, I have. I'm going to read a scripture verse now to kind of prelude the next phase of my life. Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so now I'm in high school. Uh, I'm exposed to, of course, secular teaching, uh, worldly thought, and all the other experiences a modern 80s teenager would experience. Um, now the apologetics of the world, their defense of why they believe what they believe have their full effect. And my view of God, right and wrong, um, and the, pretty much my whole worldview is turned to the dark side. Star Wars reference, mid-80s child. Um, so I, I run to the dark side. Uh, I used drugs and alcohol in high school, started when I was a freshman. Um, I was still fighting. I partied a lot. Um, if they still have uh, labels for kids in high school, I was the druggie or the gearhead or whatever the uh, greasy guy in the black leather jacket was that you avoided at all costs. That was me. Um, 
during high school, I heavy metal came onto the scene, and I grasped onto that and loved that and adhered to that for a very long time. I uh, bought into the music, the message, applied that to my life, and lived it out wholeheartedly. Uh, during this time, I became uh, violently, sometimes, anti-Christian and anti-God. Um, and when I was 17, uh, junior in high school, I joined the Army Reserves. I went to boot camp and, and uh, already being who I was, this did not help my attitude problems at all. Um, I came back to school. I had finally grown a little over the summer. Uh, I was a whopping 5'9", 132 pounds as a senior compared to when I started high school at 4 foot 11, 80 pounds or something around there. I was a tiny guy and I was ruthlessly picked on. Um, but having been through boot camp, having had that attitude, having been taught that now I am a lean, mean, killing machine, um, if people picked on me, which they did because they liked to watch me get angry, uh, they found out it was probably a mistake. I cannot remember losing a fight. That doesn't mean I didn't. I just don't remember losing any. Um, so people learned very quickly that I was an easy target, but probably a bad target. Uh, I've gained a reputation as uh, the crazy kid. Um, actually, at one time and point in time, they were spreading a rumor that I carried a gun, which was really ridiculous. My mom, being a nurse, didn't even like cap guns, so I didn't have a gun. I didn't even have a pocket. But I let them run with that rumor because it made them leave me alone. Um, so I gained that reputation as a crazy person that would rather fight than talk. Uh, once I was 18, um, I was in trouble with the law quite a bit. Uh, drinking, got caught you know, with beer in my car and drinking and being drunk in public and fighting and, and on and on and on and on. And when I was 19, I got caught stealing, um, went to court, and before the judge passed sentence, I had joined the Navy. So I got off with uh, two years of probation and was a full-time Navy guy now. Um, while I was in the Navy, uh, I would, would describe myself now as a full-blown atheist. Um, again, strongly anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-any type of authority. Uh, if you were telling me what to do, I would pretty much guarantee that I probably wouldn't do it. Doesn't make for a good fit for the military, right? <laughs> Um, and it didn't. I loved my job in the military, I just didn't like being told what to do. Um, my obsession with hard, evil music grew. Um, and I started reading horror novels to fill the time, because in the Navy, on a ship, there is lots of free time. And I was also kind of introduced to uh, hardcore pornography at that time. Uh, that wasn't my first interaction with it. Um, 
I remember probably second or third grade finding my mom's Cosmopolitan magazines. That was probably my very first introduction to, to uh, pornography. Um, and then after that, of course, I would find magazines and such in pretty much every house that had a man in it that I went into. Um, I would say my faith while in the Navy was still there. And I felt that belief in God was a weakness. Uh, I did, while I was in the Navy, go through a 12-step program, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, at which point they explained to me that I needed a higher power so I would not have to rely on myself. Um, but they told me that higher power could be anything that I wanted it, and literally told me that that higher power could be a doorknob if I believed that doorknob was greater than me. Uh, that did not help my lack of faith at all. Um, when I was in the Persian Gulf, I was in Desert Storm. Um, I am a third generation combat veteran. Um, but while we were there, my ship was fired upon by the Iraqi military. And if you all remember, they were using Scud missiles, which were horrible and inaccurate. So luckily, we didn't get hit. But while I was waiting um, for that missile to impact us, or for the all clear, I had found religion, um, because there are no atheists in foxholes. That is a very true statement. Or when bullets and bombs are flying. Everybody believes something when your death is imminent. Um, I told God I would do anything if he saved me. Uh, once the all clear was sounded, uh, that thought vanished, and I didn't recall that for many, 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 many years. Um, so now I have, that is my late teen, early adulthood, and I have another verse of scripture for the next phase of my life. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. That couldn't describe me any better. Um, so now I am fully a product of this world. I'm out of the Navy, I'm about 23, 24. Um, I'm living an incredibly reckless life. I race motocross, I drink, I party, I do drugs, psychedelics, um, whatever I get my hands on. And um, I disrespect any and everybody that I come across because I am uh, arrogant and feel as though I am a power under myself and get in my way, pay the price. Whether it was intellectually or physically or emotionally, I had very little care for my life and so I had less care for others' lives. Um, if people address me with religious talk, I would cut them down. Uh, 
with vigor and joy. Um, I enjoy the dismantling of people's faiths, mostly Christians, because they were the ones, you know, that were doing the apologetics, right? They were the one trying to get me to believe that I needed to believe in God. And none of them did a very good job of that. Uh, so, During this time, uh, I met my first wife. Her name is Susan. I stole her from her boyfriend at a party one night. And um, we started dating. And within, I don't know, a couple, four or five months, she lets me know that I'm going to be a father. Uh, this is the last thing I wanted to hear. Didn't want kids. I had told her before we even got serious about dating that she better not make me a dad, like it's all her responsibility. Um, she did, and uh, having had a middle America, Midwest, Bible Belt upbringing, I knew the right thing to do was to marry her and raise my child, and I did that. Uh, with the most pagan wedding at that time, Newton had probably ever seen. Uh, I was wearing black. She was wearing gold. Uh, the guy's hair was all longer than the girl's hair. Um, our wedding reception was a, we got married on September 20th, or October 28th, two days before <laughs> Halloween, because Halloween was on a Monday, so we couldn't, or we would have. But our wedding reception was a, Halloween costume ball with two heavy metal bands and multiple kegs. That was a very big, for that time, party. A lot of people showed up. That's how we started our marriage. Um, the man that married us, I'm sure if I found a marriage certificate, I could find his name. But the man who married us, um, he came to our house and we told him we wanted no religion, no God, just the basics, please marry us um, so we can uh, get on our way. He did not listen to us. He preached how God was a golden thread that tied two people together in a marriage. And um, yeah, as we're rolling our eyes when he's preaching that, uh, I believe that had something to do later on in the story. Um, During, during that time, uh, Susan and I had another son. And just before he was a year old, uh, come home to find a note on the table that said she'd taken the kids and left. Um, she believed she loved women more than men, and she was going to go uh, do that now. Um, that life phase in her life did not last long, but she didn't come back to me. She instead lived with another man for almost five years. Uh, we shared custody of the kids back and forth. We never got divorced. We were legally married this entire time. We tried to get divorced a couple times, but uh, neither one of us had the means or the drive to really push it through. Um, my anti-Christian views during this time are just as strong, if not stronger. Um, I meet a guy at my job, which I have a really good job, 
and I meet a guy there who shares the same interest in music as I do. And he also has a different worldview than I do, which my worldview at this time is atheistic. Um, and so his worldview was pagan. He was a Wiccan. He was a witch. And he introduced me to that. I dove in headfirst into the pagan and Wiccan uh, world. Um, it makes sense to me. Uh, you are, again, in the Wiccan pagan worldview, you are a power under yourself, and you do what you want to do as long as you harm no others. That is the creed. Um, and one, so I, I did that for many, many years. I introduced my mother of my children to that, and she got into it. During that time, I, be, I was doing um, tarot card readings and other types of uh, fortune telling. Um, I got accused of being <laughs> Satan, a demon, a devil, um, possessed multiple other things uh, while I was doing that because I was good at it. And I scared the pants off of people with the things I could tell them. Um, knowing what I know now, uh, it's uh, pretty amazing that I'm even here. So, um, Susan, after about five years, uh, I get a phone call and you go pick my kids up from the daycare. It wasn't my day to pick them up. Uh, the uh, Susan was supposed to. I call her, she doesn't answer. I eventually go pick my kids up from daycare. And I go home. I try calling her, and I hear nothing from her for days and days and days. A reporter is missing to the police. They say she's an adult. They can't do nothing. Um, after about two weeks, I get a phone call. She tells me where she's at. She's in Tennessee, and she has no plans of coming back. So she abandoned my kids and, and just bailed. Um, during that time, her grandmother died in a car wreck. Shortly after that, I believe, uh, her grandfather, who she was very close to, was in the hospital and dying of cancer. She was there. She witnessed that death. Um, it was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back. She was done with life in general. Um, she went outside and, and, in her words, she got on her knees. And she said, if there is a God, if you're out there, tonight I die unless you do something. He did. He showed up. Um, a couple days later, she shows back up in Newton. And she gives me a call. And she says, can I see my kids? And I'm like, you're crazy. No way. No way. You bailed on us. You've been gone for a month. There's more. You're not going to see the kids. Through talking... Um, we made arrangements for her to see the kids that got us seeing each other more. We got back together, we reconciled, and that showed up. No, I'm just kidding. That's my youngest son, Torin. Um, having never been divorced, we were still married. Um, so we just moved right back into being married. And we now have three children. She's an on-fire believer of Jesus. 
I am a practicing witch. Those don't go together well. Um, but I was, I had a good contract out of the state. And as I had a good contract out of state, I would get to wherever it was I was staying, go through my clothes and find books and printed papers. Uh, books like uh, More Than a Carpenter by Sean, Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell. A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. She had set Bob Radio as a preset on my radio. <laughs> um, the Power of a Praying Husband, uh, just on and on. And, and I would read these books, and I would listen to Bob Radio, and I would come home and lambast her with questions which she couldn't answer. And, and in my mind, I'm like, um, In her mind, she got the answers. She gave me answers or gave me more books. Um, so there comes a time when I'm still using pornography, I'm still drinking. She's changed, radically changed. Um, she's not as volatile, she's much more quiet, much softer heart. Um, no more cussing, you know, at least dramatically less cussing. Uh, they lived with me, couldn't help but do that. And I'm, she finds out that I'm using pornography, even though I told her I quit and blah, 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 you know, lies. Um, she gives me an ultimatum. The ultimatum is, you quit doing that or you leave. You're not going to subject my house and my children and me to that any longer. You're done or you're out. <coughs> At that moment, when she told she met me on the porch when I had come back from work, um, and she said I couldn't even come in the house. So uh, at that moment, I stood on the driveway and raised my fist to heaven and told God that if he was real and all this other stuff I was reading was real, he would have to make a change. Otherwise, my life as I knew it would be undone, and that would probably be the end of me as well. And I'm standing here, so he can um, so, real quick, First uh, Peter 3.15, uh, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. After I became a believer, um, I had a job back in Wichita. God placed me right next to a very strong, very good Christian brother. We talked about God and Jesus constantly. Um, he helped me grow. I also had the opportunity to listen to music and, and before podcasts, it was MP3s. But MP3s, music, audiobooks, the Bible, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of good teaching and listening to the Bible and books while I was at work. Um, I grew very rapidly in, in my faith. Uh, I was baptized on Father's Day. I don't know what year it was, but um, probably about 17 years ago. Uh, shortly after that, Susan went in to have a well woman check. They found cancer. Um, that was on our wedding anniversary. 
on my birthday, which was two weeks later, she went back in for a follow-up after they had a chance to look at the MRIs. They found it had metastasized, and it was no longer just they found cancer, it was terminal. Um, we went through two months, maybe, yeah, it was October, November, December, yeah. Two months of a rocket ride, chemo, hospital visits, minor surgeries, blah, blah, blah. She came home, um, went on hospice care, and went to be forward while I was holding her head. So I'd been a Christian less than a year, and I'd lost my wife. Um, a few months after that, I got tuberculosis. Yes, it still exists. Um, it was an atypical tuberculosis. The doctors didn't know what it was. Um, I almost died. Lost a lot of weight and didn't know I'm out of time. So trying to hurry. Um, but I had a major surgery and came out of that. I quit my job, came home to be with the boys, and it was just me, the boys, and God. And that was enough. He, su he supplied everything we needed. We got everything we had. Um, did that for about two years. And then uh, Megan and I got together. And we went through all the things we went through and got a lot of approvals. And we got married. And that was 13 years ago. Um, so. I've been married to her for 13 years. It hasn't been easy, but it's been awesome because we made a covenant with God to trust that he would keep our marriage together and to trust that we're both, we're both believers. Um, then God, in his wisdom, uprooted us from Newton and sent us on a seven-year journey around the South. We moved to Savannah. Lived there for a while, met some great people, great Christians, grew in the Lord, and grew together. He moved us from there to San Antonio, where we met some more great Christians, great people, and we grew in the Lord and our leadership abilities. Uh, we moved from there to Dallas, where we met some more great people, grew in the Lord, and um, then we moved back to Newton. Great big circle. We found Grace Community Church. Uh, Grace helped us, give us a place to heal from other things we had gone through, a place to grow. And now we have a place where I can share my love of apologetics uh, with all of you. I can share my love of Jesus, why I love Jesus, and why it's not just something that I do because it's somebody told me to do. It's something that is... Jeff said, it's something that is deep, it's something that is real, and something that I have learned through trial and tribulation. So, I know we're late. Um, please come back. Uh, next week, we will actually start learning stuff, and we won't have these stories. Um, uh, so, I'll pray really, really quick, and then we can go into uh, Father God, um, thank you for giving me strength to not be a blubbering mess. Um, thank you for this opportunity to uh, 
share your love and your mercy and your grace with everybody. Um, pray, Lord, that these people uh, return to hear the teaching of how we can better know who you are so that we can better defend why we love you and would do anything for you. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name.